Let's see. I learned with my nephew today what every different every kind of pitch is in baseball. I didn't know that. What's the knuckleball? What's the slider? What's the screwball? I thought that was just something you called people. I didn't know that was a pitch, you know. So I learned about the screwball. Um, then I had the exciting opportunity for the first time in my life to shoot a crossbow. Yes, Janice, that's the look you should have. Janice knows what I'm like. This was a danger to all society. Yes, a crossbow is a powerful thing. Yeah, and, and when I shot it, you know, I, I, I thought I was being shot because it was very powerful. So I did that, so I had a lot of fun. And then Katie Barnhart apparently made these deadly, because I'm a diabetic, deadly peanut butter brownie things. Weren't they good? Okay, so I've had a wild day, and now I'm excited to share this message with a very simple title, Is Being Good Good Enough? Do you think that that's a good question? Do you think that a lot of people in the world are asking that question, is being good good enough? After all, if you ask the average person on the street, how would I know that I'm going to heaven? The average person would say, well, I hope that if I'm, say with me, I hope that if I'm good enough, I'll go to heaven. So it's a very common question, and so it's something that is worthy of addressing this evening, so I'm going to address that with you. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to pray first and ask that God opens our hearts to hear what he has to say. Dear Father, we come before you this evening, and we thank you for the life that you've given to us. We recognize, first of all, God, that none of our hearts would be beating, and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for you and your power holding us together. So no matter what difficulties we're facing or how confused we may feel, if there's a pulse in our body right now, we can be sure of one thing. It's your will that we are still alive. And so you have something to say to us, God, because you love the people that you have made. And so I would ask, God, that by your Holy Spirit, who is with us in the sanctuary, that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand your word. That's what you've promised to do. I ask you, God, to speak to us and help us in the exact places where we need help. And every person in this place, including myself, including Pastor Bob, including every person that goes here and every guest, we all need your help in different ways. And so we ask that you meet us exactly where we are. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, is being good good enough? Now, to answer this question, we're going to go to a really neat passage of Scripture, which was actually written about 1000 B.C., Psalm chapter 71. And Psalm 71, verse 2, the psalmist in the Word of God says and cries out, God, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Now, let me ask you guys a question. How many in the sanctuary tonight have ever felt like you needed someone to rescue you? Anybody feel like that tonight? Amen. Okay. We have problems and difficulties of all kinds. We have troubles in our hearts. And one thing that I am sure that everybody in this place needs is somebody. We're all crying out to be delivered and to be rescued and to be helped. We know that we need that. And one of the phrases that the psalmist used here is so interesting. In the Hebrew, where it, how the scripture was originally written, incline your ear to me means bend your ear down to me. Now, this is interesting because 
I know when my nephews were really little, of course now they teach me how to shoot crossbows, but there was a time when they were really tiny, and when they were like two and three and four years old, I loved when they looked up to, up to me with their big eyes, you know, and asked me some kind of question, Aunt Shelley, and they wanted to know some kind of answer. And you know what my natural instinct was? What do you do with a little child? You bend down, and I would bend down, and I would say, what do you need? And, and I would put my ear to their, to their mouth, and I would listen to what they were saying. And the Bible is actually saying that what God wants us to do is he wants us to know that he will bend down to where we are like we do with little children. Amen? And, and actually, Psalm 138 says that though the Lord is on high, who is the highest being in the entire universe? God. And the Bible says that though the Lord is on high, ironically, he looks upon and acknowledges people who are low, the lowly. And so if you feel like you're a little bit downtrodden tonight or a little bit low, then you're in good shape because God wants to incline his ear or bend his ear to you and save you. Now, the other piece of good news that I'd like to share with you is that the Bible makes it very clear that it is in God's righteousness that we are saved. Now, this addresses the question, is being good good enough? And you're going to find out by the end of the message that that's not even a proper question to ask. Because actually, there's nobody who's good. Okay? Now watch this. So the Bible says, God, in your righteousness, would you deliver me and save me? Now, righteousness is just a fancy word in the Bible that means to be as you ought to be. How many of you would like to lay your head on the pillow at night and be able to say, wow, Today, I was exactly as I should have been. Anybody wish you could do that? Has anybody ever been able to do that? Okay, no, that's what I thought. Okay, so this is why we call out to God and say, God, in your rightness, in your goodness, would you deliver me and save me? Now, this phrase is interesting to me because I asked myself the question when I read this verse. Can you imagine if I, Shelley Prindle, called on God in my righteousness? Or if I said, God, would you love me based on the way I love you? Wow. We'd have a total disaster, wouldn't we? I mean, ask anybody who knows me. Ask my husband. Ask my friends. Ask my family. I don't love perfectly. Do you? So if I were to call out to God and say, God, and this is ironically what most people do. You know what, God? I'm going to be really good. I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And if I do these things, would you please help me? Have you ever done that before? Do you recognize that that doesn't really help you at all? (laughs) It doesn't. We call out to God in his righteousness. And, And I made a picture and I shared this at a retreat that I taught. I love this picture. I made a picture of what it, was, what it would look like if I, Shelley Prindle, tried to call out to God in my righteousness and in my love for him. Because I just don't love perfectly. Okay, so I'm going to show you that picture as soon as I share with you another passage from the New Testament, which the Apostle John wrote. And John here defines love for us. He says, in this in this. Um, The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live for him. Now, that's the basic story of Easter, that God sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross, to rise from the grave. But what I want you to focus on is the second verse there. God is going to go on to define love. And he says, this is love. And interestingly, I would think that if God were going to define love, he would define it Like, with a positive, here's what love is. 
But in this context, he doesn't define it with a positive. He actually defines it, starts to tell us what it is by telling us what it isn't, which comforts me. Here's what he says. He says, this is love, not that we have loved God. Let's just get that out of the way right now. God's love does not mean that we have loved him. Matter of fact, no human being on the face of the earth has ever reached out and loved God the way they should. Isn't that interesting? This is what the Bible says. It's not Shelley Prindle. This is the word of God. God says, this is love. Not that you have loved God, Shelley, but that he loved you and sent his son to be the propitiation for my sins. Now, propitiation is a fancy word. It's difficult to say three times in a row. Okay, propitiation. But it, it just means this. He took the hit for me. When he died on the cross, he took the hit for my sins. He took my punishment. But what I want you to see is love is defined by this. God wants to make it very clear to you. And I'm going to use Joe Cox as my example because he doesn't care. Right, Joe? He's a tough guy, okay? Joe, God does not love you because you ever loved him because you never loved him rightly without his help. You can't, okay? This is love. Not that Joe Cox ever loved God. Here's the definition of love, that God loved Joe Cox. Are you with me? Now, the reason that has to be true is I'm going to show you Shelley Prindle's love. And any of you that are close friends or family with me know that this chart, this graph, is going to be true. Now, I'm a math teacher by trade, so I like this. This is like a graph, okay? So hold on to your seats. That bottom circle dot is me, and the top dot is God. So here is what it would look like. Now, here's what I'd like to say. I'd like to brag in front of all of you and say, my love for God, I start out down there, Tricia, and it's just a straight shot up to God. Man, I love him so much. Whoosh, right to him. There we go. Okay, that's what I want to say to you, but I'm going to be honest with you. Here's what Shelley Prindle's attempt to love God on any given day actually looks like. You ready for this? This is good. There you go. Okay? That's my love for God. So I start out and I say, God, I'm going to try to love you. I'm going to try to reach out to you. It's a good day today. Wow, I'm having a really good one. Now, oops, I'm in a bad mood. I'm kind of crabby and cranky today. God, you let me down. Oop, my love for him goes down. Oh, today I'm going to church. I feel good. Uh, this is a flatline day. This is a drop-off day. I'm really stinking it up today. I'm saying things to God I should never say. I'm acting like I should never act. And then finally, in the end, you can see how close I actually get to God. Okay? That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 in graphical form. This is love. Not that Shelley Prindle ever was able to love God right, but that God loved Shelley Prindle. So here's what the graph really should look like, according to the, the scripture. There's God. There's Shelley Prindle. He's high and I'm low. He doesn't ask me to try to get to him. He comes down to me. Isn't that beautiful? God loves you even though we are a bunch of selfish, self-centered jerks to him. Let's just say, I, Shelley Prindle, by my own nature, am a self-centered, very bad jerk of a person. But God reached down and loved me. Not that I ever loved him rightly, but that he reached out and loved me first. That's the definition of love. Now, in the New Testament, we see very clearly uh, there's passages in Romans that are often used to present the gospel to people. And I want you to know that the Bible does not equivocate on this. It's very, very sure. The Bible says, as it is written, 
None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So how many people that have ever been born into the world have ever sought God and are righteous and good? Let's see it. Zero. Four times in two verses, God makes sure that you understand nobody, not a soul, not anybody, not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not Pastor Bob. Don't tell him I said that, though, because I like my job here. Not Pastor Bob, okay, not Billy Graham. Not anybody on the face of the earth. No one on their own is righteous. No, not one. There's not a single good person who really seeks after God without the help of God. That's what it says. And you look at that and you say, well, Shelly, this seems like a pretty hopeless situation. So what's the answer going to be? Well, let me show you. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous on their own. No, not one. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, He said, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Now, Easter is about the Son of God, Jesus, coming, dying on the cross, rising from the tomb for our sins. And you'll hear this phrase a lot in the Bible, in Christ Jesus. And when you hear that phrase, just picture it means this. You're wrapped around with Christ. Isn't that a neat thing? Like picture his arms around you. You're wrapped around with Christ. So the Bible says it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. There's a lot of words there, but I want you to focus on what's in yellow. Jesus became for me my righteousness. Do I have any of my own? Answer me. No. I don't have any of my own. But Jesus is my righteousness. Now, I would like to explain that to you. There's a fancy term that when you you grow up in church and you study theology, you learn this phrase, imputed righteousness. Isn't that a fancy word? Don't I sound smart just because I can say it? Imputed righteousness. Okay, this is what imputed righteousness means. This is a fancy fancy word, and this is all it means. When God looks down at Shelley Prindle, all he sees is she is a mess. And I think you'd all agree, no matter who you're talking about, every human being without God is a total disaster. Do we all agree? Does anybody know any perfect, really perfect, good people? Anybody that never let you down? Okay, when God looks down at Shelley Prindle on her own, he says, man, you are against me, Shelley. You are sinful. You are rotten. You are bad. You are self-centered. That's what he would see. But I've wrapped myself in Christ Jesus. So God chooses, when he looks at me, to put on his Jesus glasses. Now, Jesus' glasses aren't really 1.5 readers, okay, but I'm just saying. He chooses to put on his Jesus glasses, and he looks down at me like this. He says, okay, I'm going to put on my Jesus glasses, God the Father says. And now he looks down at Shelley Prindle, and instead of seeing unrighteousness or sin, guess what he sees? He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus because I have taken Jesus to be the sacrifice for my sins, and to actually become my righteousness. So even though, I'm looking for my, here it is, I walk a little too much. Okay, so even though I have no righteousness, I have the righteousness of Jesus on my life. Now, I'm a very visual person, so I wanted to use a visual with you to kind of describe this, because sometimes it's good to use metaphors to think things through. This is an actual sinkhole Hey, how are you? 
Hey, that's the kind of response I like. He likes my preaching. Okay. All right. Um, this is an actual sinkhole in Guatemala. Happened a few years ago. Can you believe this thing? It is blocks wide. Now, I want you to look at that gigantic sinkhole that is literally blocks wide. Now, I don't know how deep it goes, but for our purposes of our metaphor, we're going to pretend that that hole goes infinitely deep. I understand this one doesn't, but it would go infinitely deep. Now, when you look at that sinkhole, okay, I don't care what fancy real estate guy comes to you and says, hey, this area on the hole here, I'm going to sell this to you really cheap so you can build a house, okay? Ain't nobody in their right mind going to buy that hole to build a house on. Are you with me? Because you can't build a house on a hole. Anybody, everybody agree, okay? You can't build a house on a hole. Furthermore, you couldn't even plant a daisy on that hole, could you? You can't do anything because it's a hole. You're at a deficit to start. This is the way you and I are. This is our lives. And there are so many people walking around and they think, why can't I build a life for myself? Why can't I build a life that at least I have some peace, I have some assurance, I'm accomplishing some things that I think are worthwhile? Why can't I seem to build a life? Because if you're trying to build a life on a hole, it's going to what? Fall right down through. Amen? So this is where we all are. We're in the righteousness hole. The Bible says we have no righteousness of our own. I have no way to build a life. I'm at a loss. I'm bad. I'm at a deficit. So what Jesus came to do when he died on the cross is he said, hey, you don't have any righteousness of your own stuff? Let me provide what you need. And the only person who could fill an infinitely big hole would be what? An infinitely big God. And that's why Jesus came as 100% God and 100% man. When he came, he said, I'll fill the hole with my righteousness so that you can build. So Jesus comes and he starts putting in his righteousness in the hole. And before you know it, our hole is filled up. And now that the hole is filled, now the building can begin. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so if you're questioning why you can't really build the life that you think you should be able to build, it may be because you're trying to build on a hole. You can only build after the hole has been filled. Now, after Jesus saves you, after he fills your life with his righteousness instead of your own, after you've trusted him for that, then on the whole, you could build all kinds of structures. And God calls some people to do some things, and he calls other people to do other things. There may be people in here that what God is calling you to do is build a little cottage. You know, something that doesn't seem as grandiose as somebody else does, but it's just as important. He may be calling you to raise your children in a way that they know the Lord. He may be calling you to pray for somebody and their ministry. Other people, we see how God seems to build big things out of their life. But I want to tell you something that I shared at a women's retreat late, uh, recently. If God gives you this much resource, this much talent, this much money, this much resources, this much ability, and you use that much of it for him, guess what? You're a total success in God's eyes. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. There's a dear lady in this church, and she knows I have, it's a disclaimer, I'm allowed to use her name. Her name is Norma. And the lady that goes to our church, she is in her 90s, and she is blind. 
And this dear lady tells me all the time, I'm praying for your health and I'm praying for your ministry. And I go and proclaim the gospel to hundreds of people in different places, thousands of people. And I want to tell you that all Norma may really be able to do is sit in her house and pray because she doesn't have a lot of resources and she's blind. But in God's eyes, everything that I go and do in my ministry, guess who's a part of it? Norma. Okay? If God gives you this much and you live up to that much, you're a total success. If God gives you the ability and the talent and the resources to do this much, now watch this, but you only do this much, you failed. There's a lot of people, see, we tend to categorize Christians and we tend to look at people and say, oh, well, he's got a wonderful ministry. Look at all the stuff she does. Look at her, the results of her life or his life. We have no idea how faithful somebody's being with what God's given them. Amen? You be faithful with what God has done. But understand this. Whether you build a little cottage or you build a giant mansion, you could never have done it unless Jesus did what first? Say it with me. Filled the righteousness hole. So, it doesn't matter what you go and do. It doesn't matter how many people you affect or what you build with your life. You can never take the credit for it. Amen? Okay? Now, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, very famous scriptures about salvation, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We have nothing to do with our own salvation. We don't reach out to God. We can't offer anything to Him to save us. It's not a result of our works. However, ironically, the Bible says that we are His workmanship. So we're God's workmanship, but not our own, right? You don't work on yourself to make you worthy. God works on you. And there's the term again, created, what's it say? In Christ Jesus for good works. Now, I want to stop here and say something. Your good works can't get you to God. Your good works can't fill the righteousness hole. But God, once he does that for you, then he enables you to do good things for him, okay? Now, I grappled with something for a long time, and I want to share this with everybody to make it abundantly clear. I know a dear lady who is a very generous woman. She gives to many causes. She gives to many charities. She'd give you the shirt off her back if you needed it. She does a lot of good works, a lot of wonderful things. The dear woman, however, is not saved. She has not trusted Jesus to fill her righteousness hole. She's trusting in herself to do it. She thinks that by doing these good works, somehow she's saving herself. But I want to make something very clear. Without Jesus to fill the righteousness hole, if I as a human being start doing good things and saying, I'm going to dump it in the hole. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this good thing, that good thing, this good thing. Try to dump it down the hole. Remember how deep the hole is? How deep is it? I'm a sinner against an infinitely big God. So that hole is infinitely deep. So my dear friend, for as much good as she can ever do in her life, all she's doing is throwing it down a hole and it's just disappearing. Now, don't get me wrong. We are created to do good work, so Christians should help others. We should do good things. But I want to tell you something. If we fed every starving person on the face of the earth, and then their generation fed every next generation of starving people, and then that generation fed them, we did this good work of feeding everybody who's hungry. But we never filled their righteousness hole with Jesus they'd all still die and be separated from God and be lost forever. 
So what good did we ever do? Amen? But when we give and when we do good, we should be giving and doing good in the name of Jesus Christ. I give you not just food. I give you not just clothing. I give you not just kindness. What should we be giving people? Jesus. Amen? Oswald Chambers, who's a great theologian, he made a tough statement, but it is very, very true. He said, nothing blinds the mind to the claims of Jesus Christ more effectually than a good, clean living, upright life based on self-realization. So many people are deceived into thinking they're okay because they're trying to live an upright life based on their own works. It cannot be done. The righteousness soul cannot be filled without Jesus. And a matter of fact, although, you know, we talk about Satan or the devil and people automatically think of, you know, pitchforks and horns and slime coming out of his mouth, you know, satanic things. Ooh. Do you know what? This is the way Satan really works. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. Oswald Chambers said, for a thing to be satanic doesn't mean that it's abominable and immoral. The satanically managed man or woman is moral, upright, proud, and individual. He is absolutely self-governed and has no need of God. Isn't that sad? A person who thinks they have no need of God is a person who's under the wrong influence of our enemy, the devil. Now, after Jesus fills the righteousness hole, we can begin to build what he's called us to build, and this is why. The Bible says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree for two reasons. Notice that there are two listed here. Read it to yourself and see if you can see what they are. Why did Jesus die on the cross? The first reason is so that we might what? Die to sin. But the second reason is so that we might live for righteousness. And this is where a lot of Christians miss it. This is where we miss it. Jesus didn't only die to forgive you of your sins. He died to give you the power to live a life that you need to live. The Bible says by his wounds you have been healed. Now, as a diabetic of 31 years, I can't wait for the physical healing of my body. But there's something more important to me than my body being healed. And that is that my heart has been healed. Amen? And because my heart has been healed, I am building a life that has meaning and value. I'm trying to spread that healing to other people by sharing Jesus. And if you are in here this evening and you are thinking to yourself, what kind of life am I building? What kind of legacy am I leaving behind? What kind of effect am I having on others? What am I really doing with myself before I die? If you're asking yourself that question, by the wounds of Jesus Christ on the cross, you have been healed spiritually and emotionally and are enabled to build the kind of life on that now-filled hole that he wants you to build. And, and I just have the feeling that God is speaking to some people this evening who have been asking themselves that very question, what is my life? What am I leaving behind? What am I doing? It's by the wounds of Jesus Christ that you'll be healed to build as you should. You see, the giver of life is always a sustainer of life. The person who created you is the one who keeps you. Everybody in this church probably knows one of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 104 because I love fish. I love sharks, actually. I know that's a weird thing. 
I like crossbows and sharks. There's something wrong with me. But I love fish. But what I'm telling you is Psalm 104 says that right now it's because of God that the fish live and die. That God is in charge of the fish. And not only is he in charge of the fish under the sea, Colossians 1.16 says that by Jesus Christ, for by him all things were made, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The force of gravity continues to keep the earth rotating about the sun because Jesus is doing it. Okay? There's not a scientist on the face of the earth who can explain why gravity exists. They can tell you about it. They can describe it, but they can't tell you where it came from. It's because it came from Jesus. He's holding it together. The Bible says he holds it together. And as I prayed when we started, if you can feel a pulse in your wrist, which I hope you can. I hope nobody has actually died off in the middle of this message. But if you can feel a pulse in your wrist, that is evidence that God wills for you to be alive because he's the one that causes a person to continue to live. Now, if God gave you life, he's the one that sustains your life. The Bible is very clear in telling us this. And if he's sustaining you, then there's a reason for you to be healed and to live and to build the life that he wants you to have. Um, I want to skip this part, and I want to go, this is the last section here. I want to focus on the very next verse where the Bible says, the psalmist cries out, you know, he says, God, in your righteousness, deliver me and save me. And then he says, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. Boy, this touched me when I started studying it, when I started realizing what God was saying. How many of you, I know, I've talked to some older people recently. I've overheard some people, some elderly people having conversations recently. And it's so sad. I heard an elderly lady talking to what appeared to be her daughter or a friend. And this daughter or friend was saying, well, do you want me to take you to Giant Eagle? And the dear elderly lady said, well, not if it's going to be any trouble. You've ever heard an older person say that? Well, don't you need bread and milk? Well, not if it's any trouble. <laughs> and you know that she does. But I think sometimes as we get older or when we're in positions where we become needy, it becomes difficult for us to continue to ask somebody to help us. How many of you feel like that? I mean, with me, it's like I'm fighting with my insurance company over something, and I don't even get the same person every time, and I still feel guilty. I'm like, oh, I have to call again and bug those people. I have to come continually. Now, here's the problem. People do get fed up with us, don't they? I know people get fed up with you guys. They never do with me. I never cause people to lose their patience. But I know you do. Like, I know there are other people. Like, it is true that we can really wear people down and we can wear them out. And there are times, have you ever had somebody look at you and actually say to you, and parents, this is really dangerous to say to your children, your mom never does this, though, Shayla and Kyla, I know that. Never she does it. Do you, have you ever had someone look at you and say, seriously, I have had it up to here with you. Has anybody ever said that to you? Have you ever said that to anybody? Yeah, really. Is it mommy? Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I've had it up to here with you. Or, you know, you're having a serious problem or there's something really serious you go in your life and you go to somebody or you go back to them again and again and they say, I've just reached my 
Now, this is critical. I want everybody to hear this because this is critical to understand. Listen, God is infinite. You may say, okay, Shelley, that's nice. I'm glad you're teaching us all this theology. You should be. Because what we believe and how we live is based on truth. And the truth is that God is infinite. When we say that God is infinite, that means that he doesn't have limits or boundaries. He's perfect. He is immeasurable, okay? Now, keep in mind what I just said to you, and look up at this chart. When we talk about God, he has two kinds of characteristics, communicable ones and incommunicable ones. Now, I joke about this a lot because I do have type 1 diabetes mellitus. And thankfully for my youth group and the people that I often preach to, it is an incommunicable disease because I have been known to spit when I get wound up. Now, notice Rich doesn't care. He's into the spitting preacher. You know what I'm saying? So he doesn't care, and he knows that it's an incommunicable disease. Now, incommunicable means it's not able to be shared. But a communicable disease is one that's shared. God has two different types of attributes. Some of his attributes he chooses to share with us, like love, mercy, justice, truthfulness, and patience. We can have those things too. The difference is that God has them to an infinite degree, or perfectly, and we don't. Now, some attributes of God are incommunicable, like he's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all the time. And how many of you know, no matter how late you are for an appointment, you can only be one place at one time, okay? God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. And I know that a lot of teenagers fall into this category, but actually God is the only one who knows everything, okay? Omnipotent means that he has all power, And I know that by 8.30 at night, I'm ready to go to sleep. So I know I don't have all strength in the universe, okay? And God is timeless, okay? He has no beginning, no end. He exists outside of time. And we know that we can't travel back in time or go into the future, okay? So those God doesn't share with us. But I want you to look at the communicable ones. And I want us to concentrate on one in particular, patience, okay? Now, I want you to think of something And I really want you to allow the Holy Spirit to get this into your heart because it's important. It's like the love thing at the beginning. You think that by reaching out to God and loving Him, you're going to earn His favor for Him to love you. And you can't. Our love is imperfect, right? God's love is perfect. And we as Christians sometimes get to thinking that God's patience is like our patience. See? Because we know how we are. If Jean bugs me enough, I might look at her and say, uh, the youth group like this one, Jean, I only have so many nerves. And you are on the very last one I have. Have you ever said that to someone? You're on my ever-living, loving, last nerve. Okay? We are used to people running out of patience with us. Moreover, we are used to running out of patience with ourselves. Have you ever wanted to kick yourself? Have you ever kicked a wall in place of kicking yourself? Yes, I broke a toe once doing that. But anyway, we lose patience with ourselves and people lose patience with us. And so we get to feeling, because it's always human to human, that that must be the way it is with God. But alas, God's patience is infinite. There will never, ever, ever, now listen to me, listen to me, 
no matter what the devil has ever tried to tell you, there will never, ever, 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 ever come a day in your life on this earth that God will ever say to you, um, no, I'm done. I've had it up to here with you. Reached my limit with you. You've come too many times for the same thing. I'm done. You're on my last nerve. Because God doesn't have a last nerve. Amen? And God doesn't have a limit. Now, God, God's patience has no end. He is the rock to whom you can continually come. And I don't care if you're 90 years old and you've been coming back to him since you were two. And I don't care how much you think you've messed up and how badly you think you've failed. I want you to know that God is the rock to whom you can continually come. And he will never run out of patience for you. Now listen, here's the thing. Even though that is true of God, his patience has no end. Your life does have an end. And when your life comes to an end, there will be a judgment. And so even though God's patience has no end, Shelley Prindle has an end. And I only have so many days that I can go back to God and call on him. Amen? And then there's going to come a day when I can't call on him anymore because my life will be over. And so what we want to do is we want to continually come to him as long as we live, knowing he'll give us the strength over and over and over. He never reaches an end limit with us, but we need to do that while we're still alive, while we still have the opportunity, and before he returns. Billy Graham's grandson, whose last name I won't even attempt to pronounce. Pastor can, but I can't, so I'm not going to try. Here's what he said. When it comes to the Christian life and experience, many of us have understood the gospel as the thing that gets us in, while the thing that keeps us in is our own effort and performance. We recognize that the gospel ignites the Christian life, but we often fail to see that it's also the fuel to keep us going and growing as Christians. See, the giver of life is always the sustainer of life, and the grace that saves you is the grace that keeps you. Amen? The Jesus who filled your righteousness hole in the first place is the one who enables you to build a life, who heals your heart and says, now start doing the things that I've called you to do, and I'm going to give you the power that you need to build the kind of life, the kind of relationships, the kind of influence that you know in the deepest place of your heart you really need to have. Because what Jesus did on the cross wasn't just to forgive you of your sins. If I asked the average person on the street, why did Jesus die on the cross? They would say, so I could get to heaven. So my sins would be forgiven. That's true partially. But Jesus died on the cross to enable you to live. To live a righteous life that has meaning and value. So that we're not just giving things to people, but we're giving Jesus to people in eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Dear Father, we come before you this evening, and two things, Lord, that I really know you wanted to emphasize tonight are that we do have a righteousness hole. 
that hole is infinitely deep, and we can't fill it. Now, if we start shoveling in good works and try to say, well, if I'm a good enough person, you know, that's really what the Muslim religion teaches, that maybe in the end Allah would weigh my good and bad, and hopefully it turns out I've done more good than bad. Well, we know, God, that doesn't work. And even if it were based on outward actions, even when outwardly I'm doing right, I know inwardly my heart is wrong. So, God, we know that we can't shovel in good works to try to fill that hole. That's an infinitely deep hole because we're sinners against an infinitely big God. So we need Jesus. Jesus to come and fill that hole with his righteousness so that we can build a life. And I know, Lord, that you were speaking to people here tonight who have been asking that very question. How can I build a life that matters? What's going to become of my life when I'm gone, when it's over? What will be my legacy? What will I have left behind? Well, through the healing of Jesus Christ, you can build a life that matters. Because the grace that saves you... The grace that fills the righteousness hole is the grace that enables you to build a life. And God, I know the other thing that we really need emphasized is that you never reach a place with us where you say you can't come back. We can always come to you. As long as we live and as long as we breathe, we can run back to you, Jesus. Say, help me once again. We can always run back and say, God, I know I've failed you. I know I've let you down. I know I've messed up, but I need you again. We can always come back to you and and say, God, I'm suffering. I'm hurting again. I'm depressed again. I'm lonely again. You will never say, I've had enough. You will always be there you're infinitely patient and we thank you for these things God and as we come before you this evening I just ask you God in the areas that that I have spoken that you that you've touched my heart with I'm asking you right now to fill me and to meet that need And for every person who's sitting in in these pews, whatever it is that they have needed tonight to hear from you, I pray that they are trusting you to fill those places in their life. I can't answer it for them, God. I can't know it, but you can. So I ask everyone for just a moment as we just sit quietly and listen to the music that more importantly we'd listen to God what's he saying to you what does he want to do for you this evening what do you need to trust him for because when we ask the question is being good good enough the answer is no trusting Jesus is good enough.
thank you, Father, for your goodness. And I pray that if we need to trust you for our salvation for the first time ever in our lives, or we need to trust you for strength to build a life that you've called us to build, or we need the confidence to know we need to keep running back to you, whatever it is, God, I'm praying that you are meeting those needs as you work in us this evening. And we thank you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the answer to the question again is, is being good good enough? And the answer is no. But here's the answer. Trusting Jesus is good enough. Amen? Trusting Jesus is good enough. And I also want to um, let you know that up at the front here, I've brought down some easily understandable Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own that you can read, uh, we'd love to give one to you. So if you'd see me or anybody else, any of the people that you've met, uh, we'll get you one of those or any questions that you might have. I thank you very much for coming this evening, and I hope that... How many of you feel like God's touched your heart with something you needed to hear? Amen? I certainly... This has been good for me, okay? Very good for me to, to work through this message, and I'm glad that it's been a blessing to so many of you. It's God's Word, Right? And there's only hope in one name, and that name is Jesus. Thank you.